0: Please be seated. Once again, let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John, this time in chapter 5. While you're looking, just as a supplement to Bob's prayer, I was asked after the first service uh, why we were looking for a new youth director. Most people know, but it's one of those things I guess we assume everybody's in the loop on. And um, for anybody who might have had the question, Annette is getting married. Her fiancé is now in the military station in Texas. And She, for some reason, is not willing to make that commute. Um, Forces our hand, but we do want to continue to pray for not only whoever it is that's coming, but continue to be praying for her as well. We've been looking at the book of uh, 1 John, and for the purpose of really digging ourselves in or or rooting ourselves, getting clear as to what it means to be authentically Christian. Uh, The believers in... The church in Ephesus, where John is is writing, are a great example to us in a number of ways because they'd experienced absolutely some tremendous spiritual highs with a tremendous reputation and tremendously fruitful. At the same time, at the point that John is writing to them, they were shaky. Uh, Some had left their church, had followed after some false teachers. Others that were left behind were feeling the pain and the questions. And they are a wonderful example to us that all of us, no matter how spiritually mature we may be, we go through periods that are either dry or filled with doubts or questions that we never really arrive or are constantly in need of being renewed, having our foundation relayed and then being reminded how we live in light of the foundation or interacting with the foundation of, of our faith. And that's what this entire letter has been about, as John has been writing it to us. We come now to the beginning of the final chapter. John's not quite yet wrapping it up. He didn't write chapter 5. He wrote the the words, but he didn't put the number there. If he was doing it, he would have probably put it somewhere else. Uh, But he is tying things together, as we'll see here in just a moment. In your bulletin, it says we're going to be looking through verses 1 through 13. I was rather ambitious in the beginning of the week. And you don't want to be here long enough for me to finish that. So I will go 1 through 5 today, and then we will come back and we'll refresh again with a, really a great reminder uh, once again after Easter um, on the 1st of May when we come back to this because next week is Palm Sunday, Easter, and then our Sunday graduation uh, graduation for uh, students from William and & Mary. And ben will be preaching that week. So when we come back to that, we'll come back in a good place, but we're only going to be focusing on verses 1 through 5 this morning. Before we go there, we want to touch, uh, go to the Lord that He might touch us, uh, because otherwise we're going through a mere intellectual exercise. And as beneficial as that may be, there is far more for us in the Word of God than simply knowing things. It is to feed our souls. So let's go to the Lord. Our Father, we do come before you this morning with thanks for the fact that you have revealed yourself in many and various ways, and then have recorded your thoughts, your ways, your instructions in your word. And we thank you particularly for your servant John this morning as he answers questions that many of us struggle with or need to consider. I pray that you would not only open our minds that we may understand what is here, but that you would open our hearts that this word would nourish us, feed us, and shape us, changing our desires to be more in line with yours that our behaviors might follow rather than merely informing our minds that we may know things. And always, Lord, may your word permeate, shape, and change that we, who are your children, would more and more become like Christ. This we pray to you, knowing that you have begun that work, and by the power and the grace of your Holy Spirit, you are at work and will continue to be at work in us. We pray all things in Christ, who is himself, the Word incarnated. Amen. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. May the Lord bless us, give us understanding from His Word. I can still remember it vividly, even though it's been quite a long time. It was spring this time of year during my freshman year at Broken Arrow High School in Oklahoma. In the words of one of our assistant football coaches, still echoing through my ears and at times even through my mouth, as later on I became a coach, he was trying to teach me the proper way to throw a ball. Now, I could throw a ball fairly well at the time, but apparently I wasn't doing it correct, and he thought that there needed to be some some changes in, well, a lot of things that I was doing. And so at one point, he's talking and telling me, look, you need to be aware of, of your hands, the grip on the ball, where, what you do with your fingers, and the wrist action, because that's vitally important. You cannot throw a ball effectively without having those things working. And then he would start talking about my feet and my legs and saying, look, you need to work on your footwork, and you need, you need to understand that throw a bo- throwing a ball has almost as much to do with your legs as it does with your arm. I mean, who knew? And then he said something that finally made sense but he kept focusing while talking about my my wrist and my hands and my feet and my legs. He said, you also need to use your eyes and and your mind because guys who are better at this tend to throw the ball to the right team. So so what does any of this have to do with anything? I'm guessing most of you didn't come here this morning to hear how to throw a ball. Most of you probably couldn't care less one way or the other. But as I was thinking about this passage this week, it, it just reminded me that there are a number of things in life, whether it's throwing a ball, learning to drive a car, learning to write sentences, that require several distinct actions to all come together and work in sync or in synergy for another, for, in order for us to produce what we want to see produced. And here, as John is winding down in this letter... John is showing us that there is a spiritual synergy as well, at least in those who are healthy and growing in their spiritual life. To this point, John has, throughout this letter really, John has been focusing on three particular themes, and they're recurrent themes. He introduces them to us in chapter 2, and we hear about obedience, and we hear about love, and we hear about faith, and he keeps coming back to them in different ways, Theologian James Boyce uh, refers to them as the, the three tests. There is a, a moral test in terms of our obedience. There's a social test in relation to the way that we, that we uh, love. And then there is also a truth test in terms of the substance of our faith. And then John in chapter 3 begins to show us how some things work together. He shows that there is a relationship uh, between love and obedience, And in chapter 4, he shows us that there is a relationship between faith and love. And here, as we begin chapter 5, John is saying that all of these things actually need to work together. Just like different disciplines need to come together, whether you're throwing a ball or driving a car or whatever it may do, any things in life require not just the individual actions and the mastery of them independently, but three things come together together and work and feed one another. And this is true of our faith, our obedience, and our love. Theologian John Stott says, John in this passage is showing us that these things are so closely woven together into a single coherent fabric that it is difficult to unpick and disentangle the threads. In other words, these three things become inseparably one in an authentically Christian life. Now, John here touches on some things. He lays, relays the foundation, never to assume, and it's important that we never assume the foundation either because he begins in verse 1 by saying, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This is important in a number of ways. One, it's important because it's a foundation, and everything flows from it, and this must permeate our obedience, our love, everything that we do. We need to understand. John keeps referring to it. It's also important that we understand what John actually says here. And in this case, the ESV does a good job of communicating what it actually, what John actually said and, and wrote down in the Greek. Some other popular translations, as good as they may be, the way that they translate it brings a little confusion, and that would be true of both the NIV and the King James Version. The way they write it is not wrong, but it opens the door to something that is not only not what John said, but... Uh, an inaccurate uh, an accurate statement. What John actually says, as it's written here, is, is everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's important that we understand the tenses and what leads to what. And here, as we look at it, it's, it says the person who believes, that's a present tense, all who believe, if you are believing right now, it's, it's a present tense statement that John is making. All who believe presently. Have been born of God. That's in the Greek is called a a perfect tense, which means it's something that happened in the past, but it is continuing even now. It's been per, it's it's perfected. So, the, and again, I know most people get bored, and we're not having long Greek lessons today. You're better off than the eight o'clock service, eight thirty service, because they had to learn Greek at before nine o'clock in the morning. But nevertheless, it is significant because when you combine the tenses, you realize that it is God who takes the initiative. It is God whose power is at work. The other translations tell us that everyone who believes is born of God, and while that is a true statement, it may lead people to assume that it is in our believing that we become born again. What John says What God says, what all of Scripture says, is that God is the initiator of our salvation. He loved us. He made us born of Him and enabled us, having been born of Him, to believe. It is His gift. And to understand it that way realizes that it's not a prize that we have earned, but a gift that we have given from a God who loves us more than we understand and John makes sure that before he moves on and wraps things together, that we don't forget that, that we don't eliminate that, that we don't even just assume that as a, assume that other things are important, that foundation is something to be pondered and remembered and proclaimed. Then John moves on from there, and so he begins to talk about the way these things work together with the glue, being the love of God that has made us born of him. The second part of verse 1, he says this. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. What John is saying there is that the evidence of our love for the Father is the love that we have for others who are part of the household of God, part of the family of God. It's understandable as parents we would want our children to love each other. And we understand at different stages in life they bicker and they fight, but, you know, sometimes that's expressions of love. But what kind of agony is a parent, and some of you unfortunately perhaps had to experience this, to have children who are literally at war with one another, that have nothing to do with one another, that can't stand one another, I mean, truly divided the, the, the agony in a parent's heart that that would bring. God's, the love that we have for God is evident in the fact that we then love everybody who he has chosen and made part of the family just as we have been. In one sense, that's a very beautiful picture to just be thinking about the fact that there is this large family collection gathering of people who have been blessed, people who have been loved, people who then love one another. But on another part, it's a troubling picture, at least at least into my mind, that this is the evidence that we love the Father is whether we love other people who are part of the family of God. And the reason that it's troubling for me is well, there are just some jerkish people who are in the family of God. That are not only not easy to love they're not even particularly likable. Some of you may have actual family members that are that way, you know, biological family members. Maybe they married in, but particularly those that are biological family, you, you love them, but, you know, you don't look forward to Thanksgiving. You really hope he goes to his wife's family, that particular, so that he can build a strong relationship there. But more, you just, just whatever, obnoxious, Pretentious, whatever it may be, they just seem to get on your nerves. At times you may wonder how it's possible that you're really related. Maybe somebody just snuck them into the family somewhere. Maybe there is a switching at birth in the hospital. But they look too much like you. Or you remember when they were born. Or your parents swear, yep, that is your sibling. And you know, no matter what you wish, you share certain DNA with them And whether you like it or not, the shared DNA is the only qualification for family. You are family, no matter what. The implication of what John is telling us here is that the only qualification for being part of the family of God is that you were loved by God and therefore born of Him. We're told all over the scripture about the fact that we are not chosen because of our specialness. Paul makes it clear that In the household of God, relatively few were considered elite or purely desirable that were chosen. God chose the foolish, the broken, the weird, the obnoxious. He chose you, he chose me. And the only qualification there is to be part of the family of God is that you are born of God, as is evident by the fact that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that that's your only hope. That becomes our spiritual DNA, and we share that DNA with everyone who God loves and who is born of Him. And John is saying, now, the evidence of whether you love the Father is whether you're willing to love them. And that becomes troubling for me. It's a reminder that the body of lar- at large, we're told, is made up of a wide variety of people, different backgrounds, different gifts, different personalities, different temperaments. And thinking about that is also, and even this command, uh, or at this, this point is not a command, although it's part of what God has already commanded us, and we've seen John talk about it throughout this book, is that no matter who we are, we do need one another. And in some senses, I suspect we need the people who rub us the wrong way more than we need the ones who encourage us. We're always in need of encouragement, but people who encourage us usually just encourage us by things that are good or the progress we've made. People who rub us the wrong way reveal to us the limitations of our own love, which drives us to the cross. We're reminded that Christ loved fully by laying his life down. The command very clearly in John 1 John 3 is, we therefore also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And I'm hesitant to do that. More willing for some, perhaps, than others. But when I come face to face with the reality that my love tends to put limits on it, I am reminded that I don't love like Christ loved. Therefore, I am not obedient to the command. I am not fulfilling what Christ is like in my life. It's called sin. And I go back to the cross where once again I'm reminded what love really is. It's expensive. It's exhaustive. It's encompassing. And yet reminded of how I have been loved doesn't shame me and make me go back. It expands the capacity to love. Because I was loved despite myself. I was loved despite my offensiveness. And the offense, whatever it may be, whether it's real or just annoying that somebody else has, is nothing as compared to my offense before God. Being reminded of how much I was not only forgiven but how much I'm loved breaks the hardness of my heart and enables me to love more. This is important for us to remember, for all churches to remember. Francis Schaeffer talks about this mark of, of a Christian being a public testimony. He calls it the final apologetic, that the world around us, seeing how we love one another, is a testimony to them that not only do we belong to Christ, it marks us as belonging to him, but even that there is a Christ who came to show us love in the first place. In Our church is something we need to work on. I don't say that because we're necessarily lacking. I think there's a lot of love that goes on in this church. But just the nature of this community and this church is people cycle through. They come. People you loved have left. People come in. You don't know them. I've only been through the cycle once, and it's difficult. And some of you have been through it 20 times or more. People come into the nature. And so it requires us to intentionally to love others because we're not called to love in theory. The, the, The statement is to love in practicality. And there's no way to love somebody you don't know so it takes an investment to move us out of where we are, an intentionality that we need to invest. Not only because it's a command, not only because it's a witness, because it's God's means of enabling us to experience more of his love, to grow, to be more of what he wants us to be. And so John, as he begins, he says, look, there's a direct connection between faith that we understand the love of Christ and the love of God. That God initiated this when we were still sinners. And God is the one who loved us and he made us his children. He adopted us and made us part of the family. And now that you know what the qualification is for part of the family, all of those are part of the truth test, part of the knowledge. This is part of your faith that you also, in obedience, go in love. Those three things are connected, interconnected, and all three are working together. Reminds us then that John also then tells us thirdly that reminds us that love for God is expressed through obedience. We see that in verses 2 and 3. Verse 3 in particular. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Jesus said the same thing. When we are amazed at how much he's, he's done for us and we want to say somehow repay him, show him what we think, he says... Here's, if you love me, just keep my commands. When we do that, we also realize that the commands he's given are gifts to us for our betterment, for, not just for our betterment and moral improvement, but just, just to bless us, to, to free us, to give us joy. But Jesus says that's the mark. It's not do these things and I'll love you. It's, look, if you want to show me that you love me, then just obey my commands. And then basically he's saying, if you want to show me you love me, receive more gifts from me because the commands are given as a blessing to us. But I also find it interesting is that John anticipates um, people like me, probably people like you in the mindset, there's part of me that says, okay, now I know. And then I start thinking, well, what are the implications of this? I mean, just obey my commands, and is this kind of like a black hole that I'll never return out of? I go in, I don't know how deep, I don't know how far, I, I don't even know where I'm going. And so the idea seems good at first, but then there's apprehension, and John Uh, as he's still talking about the uh, um, love of God demonstrated through obedience, he says, and and God's commands are not burdensome. He knows our hearts very well. He's already alleviating any hesitancy that we might have in saying and committing to being obedient to him. We ask ourselves first, what are the commandments? What is it that God commands? And John's been pretty thorough in this particular uh, letter to say, look, It's not even burdensome to know. Love God and love your neighbor. All of the law is summed up in love. It's not burdensome to know. And in one sense, when you consider world religions, it's not particularly burdensome. I mean, think what uh, others have to do. It's not like we have to go uh, regularly on some journey to Colorado Springs or Atlanta or wherever headquarters might be. We're not required to turn and face a particular direction five, seven times a day. We're not required to make a pilgrimage to bathe in the River Ganges for our sins to be washed away. We're not even required to go to the River James and have our sins washed away. Although I wonder how clean we'd be, but that's a whole other issue. Um, I mean, when you consider the burden that most people have in terms of religion, ours is believe that you are loved and love in response. It's not a particularly burdensome thing that we have placed upon our shoulders. Perhaps it's not burdensome in comparison to the benefits. Periodically, A&E will run a a series showing uh, the competition that some uh, engage in to become Navy SEALs. Just the, the physical, the mental, the uh, emotional requirements are, are extreme. And you may watch it and wonder why any of you would want to do that or anyone would want to do that. I watch it occasionally thinking back to when I was physically fit as to whether I would be able to pass it. And I, I suspect I could have passed all the physical requirements, but it's the mental, the emotional, and other things that I'd rather just not think about. So why would anybody do this? And yet you have hundreds and hundreds of guys that are continually trying to find their place into this elite fraternity. And those who do make it inevitably seem to say it was worth every sacrifice I made. Why? Because they were part of an elite fraternity. I think it's important that we not talk about the body of Christ as being an elite fraternity because the connotation there is there's something special or something better. But I don't know what you would call it. That's an elite fraternity, but we are the family of the living and true God. It's not exclusive in the sense that you have to be great to become part of it, but it's a pretty awesome thing regardless. And so whatever sacrifices that seems to be made pales in comparison to being part of that family. Maybe it's that John is very cognizant that... It's not burdensome simply because of love itself. I mean, think about the different loves that you have in your own life. Whether it's parent for child or child for parents. Think back to your courtship or engagement or your marriage. And the things that you do for love without really feeling any pain of the sacrifices that you make. Love just overcomes, overwhelms, it motivates, it empowers, it moves. And things that truly are sacrifices just don't really seem like sacrifices simply because love compels. Love is far more powerful than duty. While many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the illustration, it just struck me to the point and was life-changing for me is to hear John Piper explain it. He was talking about his own anniversary and said just imagine i came home and i gave my wife on our 25th anniversary a bouquet of flowers and she says john they're lovely thank you and he says well we've been married for 25 years it's my duty not only is there now a burden that he has to carry but think about duty itself duty says what do i have to do what's the list because duty is perhaps partly driven by fear. Duty is chores that have to get done, whether you enjoy them or not. Duty is not really a motivator. It it just is something that needs to be done. Love doesn't say, what do I have to do? But love says, what can I do? Whether it's giving a bouquet of flowers as a a tangible expression of love, or any other number of creative things Love says, what can I do? And things that, for the motive of duty, can be burdensome or troubling just don't seem to be for love. A person duty-bound to give his wife flowers for their anniversary may, at the end of the day, thinking, I don't have time to get from the office to the florist and to get home. It's just, I got to do it, but I'm pressed for time. Love says, I hope I have the time, and I'm going to make sure that I do it, and then it will motivate you to do other things. And so we see the difference, and in, in, in John is saying here, look, God's commands are not burdensome. And so obedience, because it's compelled by love, and it's love based on the fact that we know what love is because Christ Jesus laid his life down for us, the perfect demonstration of that. And so we obey God's commands, and part of his commands is that we love those who are part of the household of faith. What we need to understand is that to be a Christian does not require the external burdens of duty that religion carries or any other kind of duty. The essence of being a Christian is that the burdens that we bear, the things that weigh down on our shoulders, we then turn over to Jesus. And that frees us up. And now that I'm freed up from my own burdens, I can take on some of yours. So that I can Take those also to Jesus. It's not that we don't experience difficulties, hardships, burdens in this life. We do. But the answer is not in duty and performance. The answer is taking them to Christ, realizing that the overarching uh, issue has already been resolved. That He who loves us, who's involved with our lives, takes everything upon Himself and frees us that we may love. And maybe the final reason that it's not burdensome to obey God's command to love is because we are born of Him and all who are born of Him have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us who enables us to keep a command that we couldn't possibly keep prior. And so we grow in our ability to be able to fulfill something is more energizing than to have to do something that is beyond your capability. And in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. Now, John kind of wraps all of these things up, and he he points to something that's very important for us. And really, I think it's kind of his objective in writing the letter as a whole. He says in verses 4 and 5, he talks about overcoming the world. In verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We need to think of the overcoming part as if we are stuck in some sort of an addiction. It's the best illustration of it, because when you have an addiction and then somehow get delivered from that, it's not because of your own discipline or at least not in the more serious addictions, your situation that you are being delivered from. But you've overcome the addiction when it no longer has its claws, that you are free to say no to whatever it is that was, was grabbing at you before. And that's a helpful illustration to understand the situation that all of us have in this life, because this life is full of stress, pressures, confusion, pains, you name it they coincide with the joys and the, that, that we also have, but they're there. And most people feel somewhat trapped or under something. And those who don't are kidding themselves because we are told that all of us are in bondage to sin. That's the condition that we're born in and alienated from God and can't make that relationship right. And that's the biggest problem we have, whether that's the forefront of our mind or not. And John, this is not the first time he talks about the idea of overcoming. He also talked about an association with the false teachers. I didn't really touch on it much that day, but it's an important concept, obviously, because he brings it back up again. And I guess what I should also say is I understand why people run to some of the false teachers. Because almost every one of the false teachers is dealing with the pressures that we deal with now. How to have your better life now. How to get overcome this. How to become more comfortable. How to just take ease. And we all want to be out from the pressures and the pains that we experience in this life. And if somebody can give you good advice on how to do that, it's understandable why we would go there. The problem with the false teachers is not that everything they say is necessarily wrong. A lot of them have a lot of good things to say. But they, the problem is that they mask the real problem that we have, the bondage that we're under, which is to our own sin, and to the pressures of this world. And the false teachers tell you, well, if you just follow these three tips that you'll overcome, the reality is we're still in bondage no matter how we feel about it. I mean, think about it in this way, is while comfort is preferable to discomfort for most of us, does it really matter whether the person who is walking from his cell to the electric chair is comfortable in those few moments? His situation hasn't changed. John is saying, look, everyone who has been born of God, which happens because God has loved us, he made us his child, gave us the ability to believe, has overcome. You're set free. You are delivered. People spend a fortune looking for self-help, ways to ease their lives or to make their lives better. Some prove beneficial, others don't, but none of them set us free. What John is reminding us is, here's how you are set free. Here's how you overcome. Here's how you overcome all the situation. He just points us back to Jesus because in his death, he has overcome the world. If we are in him, we have overcome as well. I'm going to wrap it up with just simply saying this, is that you know, in the hospital when a baby is born, one of the first things that is done is a test, the APGAR test, and each child is given an APGAR score, which basically looks at different aspects of the child, just as simple as appearance, or a couple of vital signs that are indicators of whether the systems biological systems are working properly. And so a good score indicates essentially a healthy child, and a a low score says we have things we need to, to work on so that the child can be healthy. In a very real sense, in these words, John has given us a spiritual APGAR test because he's saying, look, it's not just a matter of knowing the individual things, but we need to test, we need to ask ourselves, we need to evaluate whether the systems are working in our life And it's how is love, obedience, and faith, how are they all working together to feed one another, to strengthen you, that what you know is leading you to love and leading you to obey, obedience is driving you to love, and loving you is driving you back to the cross so that you understand how much you are loved so that you are empowered to go again. It is a system that's not simply, okay, I know stuff, I do stuff, I'm okay we evaluate how is our faith compelling us to love and love to obedience, obedience to love, and then back. And how does that work? John is giving us and saying, look, now that you know what the individual components are, let's put them together. That is a healthy Christian life. When you have a high spiritual APGAR test, you're experiencing authentic Christianity. When you have a low spiritual APGAR test, we don't chuck you any more than we chuck a baby. We deal with the issue, which drives us back to Christ because there's something lacking, either in reality of our knowledge, we just don't have the comprehension, or we are not somehow getting the reality of our faith to fuel our obedience and our ability to love. And I would just challenge us all to encourage one another Take regular inventory as to whether all systems are working together. To encourage those who are finding themselves low scores in certain areas so that they might find strength. And to celebrate and rejoice with those whose systems are going because it's not a matter at that point of, oh, we might puff them up, they'll become too proud. How do you become proud of recognizing that you are totally dependent and the only thing that you have going for you is that you are loved by God? That's the only basis. but as we see that at work through us individually and then corporately, we experience the health that is in line with the way that we are designed. God wants this for us, which is why he's revealed it in his word. He calls us to faith and repentance which go together. He calls us to experience his love. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for what you have given to us and provided for us and and this word and ultimately in Christ, in whom we live and breathe and have our very being, in whom we've been set free. I pray, Lord, that we would consider uh, these different aspects of our lives and how they work together, that we, as John, would see them not as individuals, but components of a whole to make us whole. Lord, bless us that we may bless you and reveal to us our constant dependence upon you, that more and more we may know how great your love is. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.